Good evening, everyone. You know, uh, you're going to learn something right now, a little bit about your pastor you probably didn't know previously. Let me suggest to you that Jeff Gill has a lot of gifts, as you've heard him teach and do different things. He's a loving, kind guy. But he is not a pastor or a man of God who has much discernment. And the reason I say that is because after laboring for 30 years in ministry, perhaps 15 of them with me, he would let someone like me come into his pulpit and in the course of 46 minutes lay his ministry to waste. I'm not a very serious guy in some ways, but I, I want to share something personal with you before we get into the study. Calvary South Bay has always been a very special church to me. You know, Jeff and I were commissioned by Pastor Chuck some, what, 14 years ago or so? More, he says. And we would come up here on Monday and Thursdays to look for a property. Steve was over at the Mission Ebenezer property. And so after eight or nine months, we found this one. And then we spent, oh gosh, a year, year and a half building it out. For those of you who have been around a long time, you'll remember the work Saturdays with Pastor Chuck coming down and Steve and the like. And it's always been like a home church to me. Because you see, when I was a new believer, uh, I, I wasn't very mature. Not that I'm mature now. Please don't get that inference. And... I would always leave churches. I was on like the church carousel is what people call it. They go from one church to the next church. If I, if I saw the pastor in the hallway, he didn't smile or shake my hand, I'd leave it. Oh, what kind of Christian man's him? You know, or if, you know, if I didn't like the way the parking ministry guys were, you, you name it. I, I would find that there was an excuse to leave a church. I was the guy that had it. And it reminded me of a story. Kind of like, you remember the castaway with Tom Hanks? Well, this is kind of like it was like for me. Imagine there's a man, and, he, and he, he, he gets shipwrecked. And he winds up on this deserted island, this atoll. And, and he knows that on the Mariner's maps, it, it doesn't say that it's inhabited. And so when he winds up there with virtually nothing, he takes rocks, he does the fires. The first days, weeks, and months, he's trying to send out signals so that someone will see him so they could rescue him. But like Hanks, after a series of months goes by, he gives up and he says, I've got to settle into a life here because this is where God's probably going to have me and I need to have a life. And so he does so. Well, seven years later, as he looks out on the horizon, he sees this steamship. And for some reason, unlike all the other cargo ships or whatnot that pass by through the years, this one stops. And he looks closely, and he sees like a skiff emerging from it. And it keeps coming to his little island. And it crosses the reef. Can you see it? And he comes into the lagoon, and then it comes up on the white sands of his beach. And there it is, a man who's in a uniform. He's the captain. And a couple men who are manning the skiff. And, and he runs into his arms and cries. And for minutes and minutes, he's so beside himself with joy, he can't even speak. And finally, when he's composed himself enough, the captain says to him, well, what are you doing here? And he tells him a story. And he, so the, the man says, well, why did you stop? No one else stopped. Why did you stop? He says, well, someone was on watch, and they saw from the deck up top that there were three huts here. And, and what are they? We knew someone was here. What are they? He says, well, you know, this hut is the house I live in. And he takes them into it. It's very small, less than 100 square feet. And he says... This is where I live. This is where I sleep. This is where I eat, where I am. Captain says, okay, this is the hut, your home. And what about the second hut? He says, you see, Captain, I'm a Christian man. And every Sunday I would go to church, and every Wednesday night I would go to a Bible study. And, and, and I don't have a Bible, but when I'd sit in church or on Wednesday nights, I remembered the hymns. And the Holy Spirit, God was faithful to bring me scriptures, and I'd think about them and meditate them. Those were my studies. That was my church. And the captain says, okay, that's your home, and that's your church. Then what's the third hut for? 
And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to. That was me. Good, you get my humor here. Sometimes I just die up here when I do stuff like that. I'm not a serious guy. I mean, Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this people. I thank you for the work you've done here in the South Bay area. Lord, a place near where I was raised, Lord. I'm an Angelino. I thank you how you've been faithful through the years to bring people and to bring servants to serve those people and to represent you. I thank you for the impact this church has had on the life in this community. Lord, I praise you. Uh, I bring your word, Lord. I, I'll confess it's somewhat scrambled sometimes in my heart, yet it's my, one of my favorite scriptures, Lord. I pray you'd take an unworthy vessel like me and firm me up through the Spirit, Lord, and that we'd have clarity. Lord, I pray that people who need to think about their faith and need to be touched tonight would be touched, not because of me, but because of the power of your word going out. And I thank you for this and ask you for this in your son's name. The study, the title of tonight's study is called When You've Got Nothing, You've Got Nothing to Lose. For those of you who are under 45, you probably don't have ever heard of the guy named Bob Dylan, but that was from one of his songs. And it's, and it's uh, the story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, about two people. And they're desperately rushing to Jesus because they're desperate, they're in need. Literally life situations. And so that's what we're going to be sharing on tonight. Um, it's a story of two people heading to Jesus. The location of the story will take you to when Jesus was on, on the shores of Galilee and he went with the boys across the ocean there, across the sea. I don't know if any of you went to Israel last year. I was lucky enough to go with your group. And he went over to where these people called the Gadarenes were. And when he landed there, you know, there was a, a you, you, and you probably know the story, there was a guy who was demon-possessed. He was naked. And he was just crazy. And so Jesus you know, he says, well, who am I to have anything with you, the demon said to Jesus. And as you probably remember, Jesus healed him. You know, the, uh, he's had a series of healings, of miracles, and he heals, and the, the demons come out of the man. And then they went into the pigs, if you remember that. And then that's where you get all the pastors telling their joke about devil dam. The pigs go off the sea, into the sea, and there it is. And at the end of that, you would figure the people were thrilled, they were amazed, but they were actually fearful. They were felt threatened by what he was going to do, and they wouldn't receive him. So, in turn, he, he, he's, he's not being received, so they get back in the boat, and they head back over to the other side of the Galilee. And that's where our story takes place, it's the location. And on the other side, when he arrives... There's a throng of people that are meeting him. Probably hundreds, 200, 300. I mean, it's not like Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He's, and we'll go through it in a little while. He, he's had miracles, taught in the temple, did things, taught in synagogues. I mean, he's known by now. And so when they hear that Jesus is coming and this village, many came. They probably came from a distance. Jesus is there. The man who healed the prophet. And so that's the location. That, the setting is this. As Jesus is walking through the town with a throng around him, a rabbi, a leader from the synagogue in town, is making his way down toward him, running probably. And on the other side, as the rabbi is running to him, there's a woman running on the perimeter, kind of walking, you know, and trying to draw closer to him. And you have these two people converging on Jesus Christ. So that's the setting. Now I'm going to give you the director's cut. You ever get that on your DVDs? You know, you watch it and you see the movie. Like, I'm into chick flicks. I'm sorry, guys. I don't watch The Terminator. I don't watch, 
that Tom guy, you know, whatever his name is, you know, the Scientology guy. I mean, I could barely tolerate Bourne. I mean, that's just who I am. I admit I'm a, I'm a wimp. You, any of you ladies need chick flicks? I've probably got about 80 of them. <laughs> and I love with the DVDs, they put on the director's cut. Because on the director's cut, the director tells you what was going on and what he wanted you to see in the scene, and he, want, he wanted the scene to do for you. So I'm going to give you the director's cut of this little story. And it goes like this. Before, let me ask you, how do you read the Bible? Were you like me? I mean, I have a tendency to read the Bible kind of like I read a newspaper, or most people don't read newspapers. They've got their iPads. They read the Internet. I don't know whether it's Drudge, USA. That's how I get my news. And you just kind of read it. And it's just, it becomes like, doesn't have any impact, you know. But, but, but here, I want you to think about how you read the Bible. Because these things come alive. There's a life to them. The Lord wants you to be there and inhabit it and see what's going on. Because if you can't do that, you can't see the emotion. You can't see what's happening. You can't see the impact. So I'm going to ask you, as we go through this scripture, to do the director's cut, you see? And as you read other scriptures, do the same. Place yourself in the scene, bring it alive. Let's take a look, and if you would turn to your uh, Bibles and look at Luke chapter 8, verses 41 through 56. That's Luke, it's, well, it's up here, 8, 41 through 56. Half blind, I wish we had better light up here. Jeff. <laughs> So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. I mean, go to, go to the scene there. Like I said, there's two, three hundred or more people. Now, it's not like driving down, you know, Vermont Boulevard. It's dirt, and it's dusty. Can you see it? You're in the town. And maybe you've heard that this prophet, this man, this healer's coming. And as you look and you come out of your little home there and you look down the way, the road, you're seeing a cloud of dust coming. And you see a few people, you see more people. And you're, what's, what's all this commotion? And it's coming toward you. And there's hundreds. And, and it's Jesus you've heard. This is the man I've got to come out and see. Maybe he'll teach. Maybe he'll heal. Are you there? It's a sunny day. And the people are excited. There's murmuring. There's talking. There's excitement in the air. I mean... You know, if someone came down Vermont Boulevard tonight and was healing people, you know, I don't know about you, I'd run out there. Heal my soul. Heal my shoulder. I blew up skiing two years ago and broke in half. Heal my marriage. You know, heal my family, my kids, all these things. Would you do that? And that's what these people are about. That's what we're doing. There's excitement in the air. So continuing on, and all of a sudden you see the rabbi come, and he makes his way down. This is kind of unusual, and we're going to discuss it a little bit deeper in a few minutes. We'll pack into it, but you know, it's not like rabbis are running to see Jesus at this point. You know, and I can realize that because, you know, candidly, I was a Jew myself. You know, I'm a believer actually now. Uh, the Lord has been everything to me. I kind of lost my family. I was disinherited for it. But I still remember, and I was actually raised a Jew. You know, I mean, I knew the word. I went to Hebrew school. My grandfather lived in the Fairfax district. He was Orthodox, you see. And, it, and it's very unusual. Jesus wasn't very popular. We're going to talk about it in a little while. But here's a rabbi coming to see Jesus. And you would think he's coming to either berate him, 
knock him, and he's bringing a group to, to knock him down. But no, he runs, and what does he do? He's coming, and he drops and worships at his feet. Why? What's going on here? So let's continue. Assuming I could find my spot again. He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Now we know why. Can you imagine? We'll talk about what brought him to that point. But as he went, the multitude thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood, everything she owned, on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, And you say, who touched me? Now, I think only a Jew could do that. The reason why is, who would have the audacity and the gall to question him at this point? It's like, Jesus is who did it as if he didn't know it. And he said, what's the matter? Are you dumb, Jesus? Can't you see there's hundreds here? Who's going to see? Everyone's pressing into you. Like he needed to know that. But that's called chutzpah, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with my faith. And they, since these were the nice Jewish boys, they had to exercise that. So Peter, as usual, takes a step too far, as we always see him doing in the Old Testament or New Testament. But Jesus, verse 46, But Jesus said, Somebody touch me, for I perceive power going out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. I mean, imagine it. I don't know if you were aware, but they used to even have professional mourners in that time. The family's there. The friends are there. It's quite a scene. Can you see it? And he just, out of the way, let me go in. You guys come with me, and the mother and the father come. But he said, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Wow. Knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. An interesting story, isn't it? Two interesting characters. Two different exercises of faith. Two people in different desperate circumstances. And they're all converging there on Jesus on that road. Let's talk a little bit about the story and its similarities. Both the man and the woman are seeking something from Jesus. The woman wants a healing from her issue of blood. The man wants his daughter cured and healed from her deathbed. Both of them share the concept of 12 years. The woman has suffered from her, her disease for 12 years, and the little girl is 12 years old. Okay, so we've talked about the story, the similarities. Let's talk a little bit more. Let's drill down into the woman. For 12 years, she has been ceremonially and socially an outcast, unclean. 
significance of unclean, it had kind of as a Jewish connotation. Because according to the Jewish ideas of the time, as this woman were to touch anyone, she imparted her uncleanliness to them. And what would that do? That meant they couldn't, she couldn't, they couldn't be part of temple service. They couldn't go hear the teaching by the rabbis. They couldn't worship as we did here tonight. They couldn't be around someone uh, socially. So they were castigated. They were outcasts. They were thrown like lepers out of the town. Let's consider this, the picture. Can you see her? Can you imagine what it's like to be her? It shouldn't take too much. She's lived alone for 12 years. What do you think it would be like to live alone for 12 years and virtually have no one talk to you except when you wander out to get your water or whatever and people point at you and say, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine living 12 years with no one ever touching you? No one ever hugging you when you cry. Maybe she had a husband and he left her. Maybe she had children. And she's there alone. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? She's never been caressed. She's been shunned. Can you imagine those 12 years never once participating in a family occasion? A religious festival, an anniversary, a birthday. Never once got to go in and worship God in the, in the, in the synagogue. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when she was ill? I needed it, she. No one's there to comfort her. No one's there to talk to her. Can you imagine the depression she probably went through? Every occasion, every part of her life were spent alone for those 12 years. And to boot, she was financially destitute. In an effort to do anything, to pay whatever she had, to get out of this lonely, terrible state, she paid doctors to try and heal her. But all she did was spend her money, and she is still unclean. She is still alone. No one hears her cries. No one sees her tears. That's what she was. That's what she went through. That's what she wanted to be healed from. Twelve years of loneliness and despair. Let's talk a little bit about the man, the leader, the rabbi probably. What was he? Well, what kind of leader was he? When you go into a synagogue, there's a man. Sometimes it's a rabbi or a leader of the synagogue. And on Saturday, when you go there, they, they sing psalms like we do worship here before the service, you see. And then the rabbi will take the Torah, the scrolls, out of the ark, opens it up and brings it out from the wall, and he'll bring it right here. And he'll open it up to where the last reading was, and then someone will come up, and it's the leader's responsibility, the rabbi's responsibility, to appoint people in the synagogue, men, to come forward and read the Hebrew and then interpret it, not unlike we do here at Calvary Chapel. And multiple men come up and read the scriptures. And then at the finish of that, the rabbi will do a tie-up kind of a sermon. And so those, those men who get to come up, that's called an aliyah, a blessing. They get to read. And so that's his role. And what's his story? His daughter is dead. It's probably, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I was running down the road to Jesus, the guy who could fix it all, and an unclean woman comes from the other way, and rather than taking me, the rabbi, first, in that culture, Jesus was Jewish, who's supposedly a great teacher, and he takes care of the unclean woman, 
and it's deferred long enough with his attention that someone comes up and says, it's too late. Well, how do you think he felt on that riff? I bet you he was a little torqued, to be honest with you. So that's what he's did. I skipped something over, so we're going to backtrack here. Go back to the woman again. She comes up behind and touches the border of his garment, and immediately the flow stops. It says there in the New King James, when she touched his garment, the woman was made whole. Now, whole in the Greek is this. It's complete. It was more than she was just healed. It's more than the blood just stopped. She was also made, the word is spiritually complete. Another word for it that's used in the English is she was rescued. Rescued from what? She was rescued from her sin. And for all intents and purposes, she was rescued from her eternal damnation, just as you and I were when we accepted Jesus and his work on the cross. And so that's the word. She was made whole. She was healed. She was, of course, made physically well. Consider this, that when we come to Jesus with our sin and lay it upon him, he makes us clean and he makes us whole. That's the message with her. Got it? When we come to Jesus with our sin and lay it upon him, he makes us clean and makes us whole. When have you last come to Jesus with your sin? I mean, really had a real down and kind of dirty discussion with him. Confessed. And there's such a beauty because that's where we meet Jesus at the cross, you see. Because that's when all our sins were put on him. That's our point of contact with him. And look what came from it. Our salvation. Our cleansing. Our being made whole spiritually. So that's the woman. Now let's get back to the man since I'm getting old and senile and can't remember how to teach anymore. The man's story, as I said, she's told about him and the un- she's dead. I, I would imagine the guy, as I said, was torqued a bit at Jesus. And I, I, I candidly, I get torqued at Jesus. I've been walking with him for 25 years and I get pretty impatient with him. My son walked away from the Lord. He served. All right. Here we go. It's tough having glasses, hearing aids, and a device. That's okay, Jeff. I'll get it. What a drag it is getting old. It's going to be music night. I'll do something here. We got you? Oh, jeez. Forget the hearing aid. I don't need to hear me. You do. This is a Shakespearean aside. I don't know how to do this, Mr. Gill. This is the way we work for partnership for years. I would be the brains because I was the Jew, and the Gentile would do the work. Chuck used to call us the Jess because he knew we, were, we weren't typical people in ministry. We actually got things done. But I won't go into that story now. Thank you, Jeffrey. Proud to be your boy. Proud to be yeah, my, my boy, yes. That's terrible. I don't want to tell you. But, you know, if I, I draw my Jewish roots, God's been kind of somewhat cruel to me, if I might confess on a personal level, open up a little bit. Because first I had to work for Pastor Chuck. I mean, what's up with that? I was a lawyer, too, so you can hate me for that when you're done at the end of the night as well. And, and can you imagine when I would drive home from Murrieta to Vista, North San Diego County? I have to say, Lord, why am I working for a Gentile? Well, something's upside down here. It wasn't the way I was raised. And then when I left ministry, I went to Chuck Smith the Lesser, my f- dear friend and partner. Two of my close friends are here. There's two others. One of them is another guy named Chuck Smith. The reason I went to work for Chuck Smith is I wanted to save money on my business cards. 
And he was a Gentile, Christian brother. I met him at, when I gave my testimony at a men's retreat at Alpine Conference Center in 1991. And he used, to say, he used to say to his buddies, and it was a major company, we sold it for a tick under a half a billion dollars. And he used to say to all his CEO buddies, hey, I got my own Jewish lawyer. I wanted to kick him. I mean, it was none of the, yeah, let me pray for you, brother. You're, you're too prideful. No, I wanted to murder him. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the study, and my insanity can take a back seat for a moment. The man's story. Can you imagine the rabbi? Like I shared with you, he was probably a little impatient, maybe upset with the priority of things to be done. What can we learn from that? Well, this is what we can learn. It's far better to have God's timing in our life than ours. Boy, we sure say God's will be done, but you know, it's like, you know, I don't know. It's like will's the name of a child. It's not like where you do what you want, I'm, I'm submitting here. We want our way. We want our will. We want our timing. And this leader rabbi, I think, wanted his own timing. Because in his own mind, Jesus should have just dump the unclean woman, maybe do her lady if, later if you care, and let's hustle down because my daughter's dying. You see, he didn't understand first that he was dealing with God, and second, he didn't understand that it's God's timing. How about you and I in our lives with that? God always knows what he is doing. We sometimes think that God has waited too long. You ever feel that? I dated my wife for a long time. I, you know, she was a neat gal, Christian, beautiful. Worked in my family business. We were in the men's clothing business in Los Angeles. She was 22. She knew what she wanted to do with her life. I had just come out of a place called Synanon, one of the original drug programs, from a, cleaned from a heroin addiction. I'm driving my sister's 10-year-old Camaro. She's over in Scotland University, so I get the car. I have an apartment. I have an Al's Woodcraft unfinished wall unit, a cheap used TV, and my dining room table is the cutting board from the the apartment kitchen. There was nothing for her in me. Wrong faith, no career, drug background, there's someone to get hitched up to if you're a winner. <laughs> but I, I thank God that she listened to the Lord. And, but for me, I, I, I wanted her to give her attentions to me. It took me nine months to get a Saturday night, night date with her. She had all these other guys. You know, it was a little bit different dating back then. It's not like she was loose, you know. And if she's watching, honey, I love you. I really am not saying these things. But I'll tell you what. You know, it's like I just figured it would never come around. And I said, Lord, when are you going to turn her heart toward me? And I was impatient. Just one example in a multitude of my life of me not wanting his timing. I mean, think for yourself. So we need to consider that, that it's better to go with God's timing, and sometimes we're going to have to wait. Lord, give us that patience. The, some, the other thing is, it goes down to faith. A lot of times we don't things can be fixed. A relationship with a parent, Lord, it can't be fixed. They never liked me. They were toxic. They were abusive. They were an alcoholic. Whatever. They're not a believer. I am. Maybe you have a teenager. For those of you who have teenagers, I will be doing special prayers over in the corner after the service. I am just God's grace. I didn't kill my son. I almost strangled him on the staircase one year. He dissed his mother, and that was enough. But I did it in a Calvary Chapel right way because I was a pastor then. So I want you to be comfortable with that concept. You know, I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Sometimes we think things are beyond fixing. The father thought that when he heard she's dead, what do you think he thought? It's beyond fixing. Nothing in Christ is beyond fixing. The, The man who measures and spans the universe between these two fingers, this ain't a gang thing. I mean, this is... This is our God. Nothing is beyond fixing. He's fixed my marriage. He fixed my drug dependency. He didn't fix my arrogance yet. That's coming. (laughs) I mean, he fixed my relationship with my kids. He fixed all of it. He made everything whole. The disinheritance I got because of my walk in Jesus Christ from a Jewish family, he even fixed that. And those are mine. You have your own. My, my testimony is no better. It's common with you because that's who our Lord is. Amen. He wants to fix it. No matter what the trial. And what were Jesus' instructions to them and to us? Do not be afraid. Don't fear, he says. So he's speaking to us. And those trials and those situations. Have faith in me. Believe. So he turns to the little girl and he says, Arise. And Jesus, note that he speaks to the girl as if she's alive. He doesn't say, You're dead, please come up. Arise, as if she's living. She could hear him. As if she were alive. In Romans 4.17 it says, Because God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And at that point, his her spirit had departed. It didn't exist anymore, but he said, Arise, the spirit returned, and she got up. You may see a trial or a difficulty or problem in your life with a job, whatever it is, and you may see that your spirit's completely gone out of it. But God can touch you. You can call out to him in faith. And we'll talk about what quantity of faith is it is in need, that's needed. And he's going to heal it. He's going to fix it. He's not going to do it immediately. I lost my business and back in 1989. It took four or five years for me to get myself back into shape financially. And being a Christian, I had no discernment as a, at that point, And I decided to go to work for... Pastor Chuck and live a life of abject poverty. So I don't know if that was the smartest financial move, but, you know, he fixed it. And the little girl was raised from the dead. So what's the whole point, Jeff? What do you, what's the, the spiel about? What's your teaching about? Well, let's talk about the application. Faith requires Action. It's something one must exercise and do. You need to put it to work, no matter how little you have. And it isn't because, you know, okay, Jeff, there's something metaphysical going on with the concept of faith. It's about who we have faith in. And if he's capable of all things, then all he's saying is you need to do something. Give that to me. Believe in me. Give me the barest amount, a mustard seed. And he wants to deliver that to you. It may not be immediately. It may be nine months if you're looking at the girl you want to marry. It might be five years if you lost your business. It might be many years for other things. But you have to exercise it. You have to do it. You can't say, well, I'm going to have faith. Go do it. Get on your knees. That's an exercise in faith. And say, Lord, this is the problem. You know what it is. Help me. Fix me. And don't do it just once. Keep exercising it. You have to do that. So faith requires action. The opposite of faith is inactivity, fear and doubt. We're going to talk about that and unpack that in a few minutes. But don't live with your fears and your doubts. 
It was amazing. I was talking yesterday to a brother here, and he's talking about the majesty and the greatness of God and all these things. Behold him. Can you imagine that? How great and wondrous and who he is? Why is there doubt? I get there's fear. I, I, I remember uh, occasionally I'll get the gift of wisdom, you see. My wife probably would disagree with that, but let's leave that for another day. And sometimes, I don't know if you do it at this church, but you'll stand up and you'll have a time after or during worship where you'll have exercise of the gifts. And maybe someone will stand up. And sometimes God gives me a gift of wisdom or the Word, and I'll share it. I have no clue what it means, why, who it's for, but... God uses that to speak to someone. I remember the last time this woman comes up to me crying after church. Why did you say that? Thank you. It was like God was speaking to me. Uh, It's not because I'm a great person spiritually. I just know who my God is. I know how He saved me from the pit of hell. I know how He's fixed my life, my marriage, and everything. And, you know, I'm I'm at the point where, you know, if you're going to show me something... I'm going to take a chance with you. And I can't say I've done that all my walk. But I sure will now. The closer I get to God's green room, the less I'm fearful. And so the opposite of faith is inactivity, fear and doubt. Faith is a point of contact that evidences God's desire to commune with you. The point of contact for this woman, what was it? She reached out and she just touched him. She didn't even talk to him. She believed in her mind when she left her little hovel. And can you see her? Let's go back to the picture. This woman is kind of, she's not working into the crowd. She's got to work the outskirts. Why? Because as she comes into the crowd, people go, I know you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And they'll chase her away. And so she's working the outside. But there's such a throng, people can't possibly notice her. There's excitement. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And she works closer. And she works in amongst the men and the women, hoping, desperately hoping not to be seen. Why? What's she doing? Because she believes that if she just touches him, she'll be healed. And can you see her get closer? Can you see the crowd? They're, you know, it's like, he's like a rock star, you know? It's like a Dodger coming out the right field side after the game, you know, at the end of right field. When I was a kid, we used to do that at Chavez Ravine. And the fans would flock around to get signatures. You had to fight to get close. That's what she's doing. And probably in a lunch, she touches him because she believed he would heal her. What was that touch? It was a point of contact. That's what God wants us to do, to reach out and touch and have these points of contact with Him. So what what can we learn from that? The woman. The object of faith is much more important than the quality or quantity of faith. Let's do that again. The object of faith is much more important than the quality or quantity of faith. Her faith, who was the object? Jesus Christ. And the man, what can we hear from the man on that? The man, God wants us, his children, to be made whole. That's what he said to him. He said it to both of them, in fact. You will be made whole. Fear not, he said to him. And so the scripture said, believe only and she, his daughter, shall be made whole, healed spiritually, all of it, just like the woman. So we talked about two things. Faith requires action. It's a point of contact that evidences God's desire to commune with you and I. The third point, what to do when you doubt or are fearful? Well, number one, don't deny it. I don't know, you ever, you ever meet these people, and I don't know, there used to be a guy in my church in Vista, it's like he was born a Christian. Just a good guy, you know? I, I can't get it. It's like he's never done anything wrong. And, and I said, why? Why do 
Lord, why do you make people like that? Because it makes me feel like I'm such a worthless thing, you know? I have such doubts. I get so fearful. God's not concerned with that. Don't deny it. Don't condemn yourself. That'll be the next teacher if I ever get asked back. Our self-condemnation. Well, talk about holding back the new life that he wants. I've given you a life and that more abundant, but I want you to condemn yourself to the bitter end. That's another teaching. So don't deny it. Second thing, step out anyway. And the third, get over it. It's not that big a deal. You lose your parent, they pass, that's a big deal. You lose your job, your home, kids on drugs, wife leaves you, I don't know, husbands cheat, I don't know. That's, this is major stuff. But for faith, if you're doubting and fearful that you should exercise it, get over it. It's not that big a deal. I hate to be tough love here, but that's the reality. Jesus does not want us to live stuck in our doubts, in our fears. He can give us that abundant life to be doubtful. Recall Jesus said to the boys when they went from Galilee across to where the Gadarenes are, he said, let us go over to the other side of the lake, Luke 8, 22. Jesus didn't say, well, let's do the best we can, but maybe we'll all drown. He didn't say that. Let's go over. I mean, they've seen this guy speak. They've seen him heal. They, they probably know he's, that means it's going to happen. And what happens when they go over on the boat? The storm comes up. And all these mighty fishermen, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die. Little pansies. <laughs> Jesus calms the storm. I mean, you have a little faith. You see? So he doesn't want us to live stuck in our doubts and fears. When his word says something, you have faith that it's so. And the last point, God will never condemn you or be displeased with you when you exercise faith, even if it is small, meek faith. You hear that? God will never condemn you or be displeased with you, even if you exercise meek, pitiful, the best you can, Lord, faith. It says in Scriptures, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Roman 8. He's not going to condemn you, even when you feel you've, well, I'm not doing much, I'm not exercising much faith, or eeyoring it. God's happy that you're just coming to Him with that mustard seed. I love what Matthew Henry, who's a commentator on Bible, the Bible, says. Strong faith shall be applauded, but weak faith shall not be rejected. You get that? So let's close. I'm going to ask you a question. We've talked about these two people. We've had a story. I hope it's come alive. I hope you saw their exercises in faith and what happens from that. I'm going to ask you as we come up tonight, are you reaching out to touch Jesus Christ? I know you're here, and I get it. You're here for the Bible study. But let me tell you, as I was sharing with the staff a couple days ago, you could be in ministry, but you, are, you may not be ministering with the Lord. And the correlation to that is you could be here, you could be a believer, you could be doing the Bible studies, active in ministry, but if you're not reaching out desperately for Jesus Christ, you're not going to have that point of contact or that touch. That's what we need. He wants that. He wants to commune with you and I that way, desperately. Remember, He went to the cross so we could restore our relationship, our fellowship, as He originally created it. So are you reaching out to Christ, I'll ask you tonight. The second thing is, are you believing God for His promises? I know we say that as believers, but I mean, have you, believing is putting it into action, acting as if it's so with your faith. Corey Ten Boom said this, 
Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. I'm telling you, I received the impossible. I shared a little about my life. I'm healed. I've got a wife. I've misrepresented ministry to my kids, you know, the workaholic. And God fixed it. He fixes it. It's impossible. I couldn't do it. What makes this impossible is a man of the flesh, just as myself, with such arrogance and intellect, will try everything. And having failed, I cry out with my little bit of faith, Lord, heal me. Lord, fix us. Lord, do that. And I've seen the impossible. Haven't you? Tonight we're gathered here, and many of us are pressing. We're pressing to get closer to Jesus. We're thronging. Many of us here need to be made whole. There's something that's holding us back. There's a problem in our life. Maybe there's been a dryness spiritually, and you're going through the motions. Everyone goes through that. We're in the desert, even though we're all intents and purposes. We see you in the church. You smile. You do all that. You need to be made whole. Maybe you need to be made whole because you're ill, because something's wrong with you. Maybe you have a joint like mine that, you know, got messed up. Many of us need to be made whole. Many of us need healing of one sort or the other, spiritual, from sin or whatnot. We're going to have one last worship song. The band's going to come up. And I want to encourage you that if the Lord's spoken to you, maybe he's saying these things to you and to your heart. Are you hurting? Are you bound up? Maybe you're still haunted by the memories of your former sin life. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you were emotionally or physically abusive to someone you loved. Maybe you disappointed someone so profoundly that you shouldn't, knew you shouldn't have disappointed. Maybe you've been taking God's blessings and trespassing on them and ignoring them. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Are you by faith reaching out to me, says the Lord? Really touching me tonight. I want to encourage you as we go to this last worship song. We're coming to worship him. We're coming to touch him. We're touching to grab his hem. We're touching him to resurrect our life like that little girl. I want to encourage you to reach out. I want to reach you to touch. I want to encourage you to have faith and believe.